So there is this saying that goes, as goes the king, so goes the people. I don't know if you've, if you've heard of, of that, but it really is highlighting for us the impact that a king has on its people. And we see this principle throughout scripture, especially in first kings, where it says this, that the king Basha did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So by his own sin, he made Israel, following that example, walk in sin as well. And in this chapter, what we see here is really the tragedy that Israel experienced because of Saul's sin. Because of his disobedience. So because of his sin, Saul, Jonathan, lots of the army of Israel have now been destroyed. So you see, having the right king or the right representative is a matter of life and of death. And in this section, we see the heart of the lament repeated three times. How the mighty have fallen. He repeats that three times. So in this sermon, we're going to look at the death of the mighty. And then second, the strength of the mighty. And then the response to the mighty. So in the first, we see the death of the mighty here. And in light of this death, what we see here is a reaction and a curse. So the reaction we see here in verses 19 and 20, uh, look with me there. As he says, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. See, Israel here has experienced this great defeat. And we see in these two verses that the lament is directed to Israel. As he says, O Israel, what is the extent of this defeat? It is that the glory of Israel has been slain. That's a very important part we're going to come to later in this sermon. But we see the phrase here repeated three times. How the mighty have fallen. But more specifically than that, we see Saul and we see Jonathan lying there on the battlefield slain. And then verse 20 is telling us this reaction to this defeat of Israel. That the story of this battle should not be told in Gath. It should not be published in Echelon. And what we see here is really two very common literary techniques. We see parallelism used very common throughout the Psalms when we have two lines that basically say the same thing, just a little bit differently. And the second one we see, you know, where it's, uh, it's saying, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. They both mean the same thing. David does not want this terrible news of this battle being told. Uh, and the second technique we see is as he mentions these two cities, He's really referring to the entire Philistine nation. And we're familiar with this, with phrases like, from the east to west. What do we mean? But but it includes everything. So David is referring to the Philistine nation as a whole, saying he doesn't want any town, any city, any village to hear or to speak of the news of this terrible and awful day. But why? Well, because David could not bear The Philistines rejoicing over this. Uh, We see another parallel here of rejoicing and gladness. 
And David may have in mind 1 Samuel 18. So in 1 Samuel 18, he was welcomed home with singing and with dancing for having defeated Goliath and the Philistines. Great rejoicing. But he could not bear the Philistines rejoicing like that over the defeat of Israel. But even more than rejoicing, they will speak ill of Israel. And much more than Israel, but of Israel's God, the Lord himself. You see, in this time, the pagan nations believed. And when two nations fought against one another, it was really their gods you know, fighting against one another. So if one nation won over another, it was that God defeating the other gods. So what the Philistines thought was that their god, Dagon, had defeated the Lord. Which, of course, is ridiculous. David knows that could never be the case, but he just could not bear their rejoicing. And we see then in verse 21, the curse that comes. See, David is addressing the mountains of Gilboa here, the place where the battle took, you know, the place where the battle was. And he calls for there to be no dew, no rain, no fruit would come of it. He doesn't want any fruit and any offerings there. You know, this is a very agricultural and the idea is for there to be no fruit, no growth, no harvest. And as he uses the word offerings, he's highlighting again the connection to the Philistine god Dagon. He doesn't want anything to be offered up as a sacrifice to the pagan god because of the defeat of Israel. And the second half of this verse that we see here in 21 gives the reason for the cursing. That is the place where the shield of the mighty was defiled. And you see, this is really a roundabout way of speaking of Saul. It is Saul's shield that is lying there defiled on the ground. So he speaks here of the shield, but of course, Saul's body was laying there as well, defiled. And when David goes on to say that Saul's shield was not anointed with oil, it reminds us of Saul. Being the anointed one. You know, if you remember in 1 Samuel twice, David had the opportunity to kill Saul. And why wouldn't he? Saul was trying to kill David. It would be natural for him to kill Saul, take over the kingship. But David refused. Because Saul was the anointed one. But now, we see here Saul's body laying on the battlefield, defiled, covered with dirt and blood, while he should have been anointed with oil instead. So we see here, with the Lord's anointed being defiled, God's people, Israel, is, is likewise defiled. Now, generally in these books, First and Second Samuel, Saul is presented as a foil, as a contrast to David. David is the one who is a, who is a type of Christ, he is the one who, who makes us look forward to Jesus Christ himself. Whereas Saul is a, a kind of antichrist. But here in this passage, David is giving us a glimpse of Jesus, Saul. Do you see the analogy here? Of the anointed one of God who is lying defiled, not anointed with oil. See, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, what we have there is Mary, sister of Lazarus and Martha, coming 
and anointing Jesus' head with oil. Now, the significance of anointing someone's head with oil is clear. You know, we see that throughout the Old Testament of representing kingship. See, kings are anointed. So here, with the anointing of Jesus' head, we see Christ's kingship implied. And she has done this great act of anointing Jesus, that Jesus says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And that account is one of the few that we find in all four gospels. But Jesus would not receive another anointing. For his enemies would come, they would take him, and they would crucify him, defiling his body. You see, Saul, is a, he's a poor king. He's a poor representative, and he suffered, and he was defiled because of it. And his people, they suffered the consequences of it. His body and the bodies of many other Israelites lay slain there on the, on the hill of Gilboa with the enemies rejoicing. But the day was to come, wasn't it, for the Messiah to die similarly. He was to be slain. He was to be defiled on the top of a hill. But unlike Saul, this representative, Jesus Christ, does not remain slain on that hill. But his body, indeed, is risen victoriously as he has conquered his enemies, both death itself and Satan. He is the one who suffered not for his own sins, but for the sins of all his people. And we, as long as we believe, and we rest on Jesus alone for salvation, we share with Jesus in his victory, in his exaltation. He is our representative. All that is his is ours. And through him, we have that everlasting and eternal life. See, Saul, he's a poor Messiah figure. As the many bodies on Mount Gilboa is evidence of But neither David nor any of the Testament kings brings hope or certainty of salvation. So the question for you this evening is, who is your representative? Who is the one on whom you have placed your hope? Who is it that you are holding to that you think can fix everything? Is it, again, a political leader? Is it your boss, perhaps? Is it your spouse? Is it your parent? Or is it yourself? Now, sure, you may not end up dead in a field, but death is what awaits all of us. And there's only one sure hope, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died, but he also rose victoriously and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty with all the power and with all of the might. And he can be your representative. He can be your hope. He can be your sure guarantee. But only if you come to him. See, we see here the death of the mighty, but we also see the strength of the mighty. Look at verses 22 and 23. Because here in verse 22 and the second half of 23, we see the strength of the mighty in battle. Jonathan and Saul, they fought with great bravery and strength. You know, their weapons, the bow representing Jonathan and the sword representing Saul, 
They did not turn back nor return empty, but continued to go forth. It says they were swifter than eagles, meaning they moved with great speed. They were stronger than lions, emphasizing their great strength. But then we see here in the first half of verse 23 is the strength of their character. Beloved and lovely, he calls them. Now, for Jonathan, this makes sense. And we will spend a little bit more time on that in a bit. But for Saul, beloved and lovely, the man who tried to kill David twice, almost, not exactly what I might call a lovely person. But it is true that in the beginning of the reign of Saul, he was beloved, he was lovely. See, through his strength, he had defeated enemies, and he was honored and he was respected by the people. And then we see David saying they were not divided. Because even though Jonathan had renounced his right to become king, and Saul had tried to kill David, the one that Jonathan loved, Saul and Jonathan, they remained together. They remained united in life and in death on that battlefield. See, Jonathan, even though he loved David, was faithful to his father even unto the very end. So we see there the death of the mighty and the strength of the mighty. And thirdly, and finally, the response to the mighty. And we see here both a response to Saul, but a response to Jonathan. So in 24 and 25, we see this response to Saul. And David here is now addressing the daughters of Israel. He's focusing on Saul and he calls them to respond to this tragedy by weeping for and mourning over Saul. See, unlike the Philistine women, you know, who rejoice, he calls on these to weep. See, Saul is the one who has provided for them. He is the one who has clothed them. You know, despite Saul's many faults, in his time he had brought stability. He had brought some prosperity. You know, think about what comes before Saul. The book of Judges, with all the tribes divided and being conquered by the enemies, by the Moabites, by the Midianites, by the Philistines. But yet, in the time of Saul, all 12 tribes stood united as one nation under one king, and he goes on to defeat the enemies of Israel. We read this in 1 Samuel 14, that when Saul had taken kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. So here we see someone who has delivered, who has delivered Israel from her enemies and for the first time in a long time, brought prosperity. And next and finally, we see the response here to John. And this is where we'll spend some more time as we look on verses 25 and 26. Because right at the end of verse 25, we see another parallel. I don't know if you caught this one, because it connects with the very first verse of the lament that we see right there in verse 19. Which said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. And here it says, Jonathan lies slain 
on your high places. You see the connection that David is here clarifying that the glory of Israel, or as it can be translated, the jewel or the splendor of Israel, is Jonathan. See, the lament in this way both begins and ends with Jonathan. See, the death of Jonathan is the greatest loss in this battle with the Philistines. But why? Well, as we continue, we see how this lament shifts. It is now addressing Jonathan. See, David, in the beginning of the lament, prays Saul and Jonathan in third person. And he then called for the daughters of Israel to weep over Saul. But now he is addressing Jonathan directly. I am distressed for you. He calls Jonathan his brother. The one who's been very pleasant to him, whose love was extraordinary, whose love was greater and surpasses the love of women. And before I explain what that means, I'll explain what it does not mean. Because there are those who read into this passage the idea of homosexuality. But this is not what we see in this passage. I think if we have read through 1 Samuel so far, we understand what is going on. Because who is Jonathan and who is David? Well, from the perspective of Jonathan, at least in the eyes of the world, David should be the enemy. David should be the enemy because Saul is the king and David is the threat to his kingship. David has not, has, he has been anointed now to be king and as long as David lives, Saul's kingship is in danger. But more than that, Jonathan's kingship is in danger. See, Jonathan is the heir. He is the son of the king. He is to become king. So as long as David lives, David is a threat to both his and his father's kingship. But throughout 1 Samuel, we see Jonathan's response as Saul tries to kill David. See, Jonathan, he tried to persuade his father of David's goodness He warned David of his father's desire to kill him. And even greater than these, Jonathan made a covenant with David. In 1 Samuel 18, it says, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And he takes off his his royal armor and his royal robe and gives it to David. This is quite the, the symbolic act. Because here, Jonathan is taking the things that signify royalty and is giving them to Jonathan, giving them to David. And then just two chapters later, Jonathan is renewing his covenant with David, promising to warn David. But also, he says these remarkable words, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. See, he was confident that this would happen, that the enemies of David would be defeated. And then in chapter 23, in the midst of of Saul's pursuit of David, Jonathan says to David, Do not fear the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. 
See, Jonathan knew, even though he was the son of a king, the son of Saul, that he is not the heir. He is not to be king. For the kingship doesn't belong to Saul anymore, but it belongs to David. He knows the Lord is not with with uh, Saul, but with David. And I can give countless, countless examples in the past thousands of years where power and authority have been fought and killed over. But unlike those many examples, Jonathan here freely gives it up to David. So when David here, in his lament, in Second Samuel 1, says that Jonathan's love was extraordinary, he's talking about Jonathan's actions of giving up the throne, giving up everything for the sake of David. So he says that Jonathan's love surpasses the love of women. What does that mean? Well, at the heart of love, especially marital love, is fidelity. It is faithfulness. But who has been more faithful to David than Jonathan? Here's a quote from Matthew Henry that highlights this faithfulness of Jonathan. He had reason to say that Jonathan's love to him was wonderful. Surely never was the like for a man to love one who he knew was going to take the crown over his head and to be so faithful to his rival. This far surpassed the highest degree of conjugal affection and constancy. See, this is, this is not the only time we see this marital language used without referring to sexual acts. You know, think of the relationship between God and his people. Of course, in the New Testament, we have the image of Christ and of his bride. But even in the Old Testament, when Israel turns away from the Lord to worship the Baals, you know, the pagan gods, God says they have committed immorality, that they have been adulterers. See, God made a covenant with his people, and he promised to be faithful, and he has. Yet his people have been unfaithful to him. And here Jonathan has promised to be faithful to the covenant he made with David. And he has. Because Jonathan, we see, is a most faithful friend. So what we see here is the death of the mighty. The strength of the mighty and the response to the mighty. And then we see with a final refrain, the lament ends this way, how the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. It is over. See the bow of Jonathan and the sword of Saul, they lie there on Mount Gilboa, useless, wasting away. And this is the lament that David wants for all his people to know and to sing. Because even though Saul and Jonathan are at the heart of this, this is a lament for the whole nation. As the whole nation has lost husbands, brothers, sons, as they perished on that mountain. But what does David's call to remember Gilboa mean for us today? And I think for us, it means to remember an entirely different kind of mount, a different hill, the hill of Golgotha, the place of the skull, the hill on which the mighty, indeed the mightiest, had fallen. 
See, the glory of Israel, its splendor, its jewel, is slain on that high place. Indeed, the glory, not just of Israel, but the glory of the whole world. But because the story of Golgotha does not end on Golgotha, but indeed continues with the empty tomb, with the resurrection, with the ascension, and will come to its final fulfillment at the return of Christ, we see the lament here that we have in Second Samuel 1 is flipped on its head. See, because of Gilboa, Israel is told to not tell of this, to not share it in Gath or Ashkelon. But because of Golgotha, we are told to share this great news, to go out and share it not only in Jerusalem, Judea, or Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. Because of Gilboa, David does not want the Philistines, the uncircumcised, to rejoice. But because of Golgotha, Christ wants the whole earth, Jews and Gentiles, to rejoice of the salvation that we have because of his life and his death. You see, the mightiest one has fallen. But he has conquered and he has risen. So that today, if you believe... In Jesus Christ, to be your Lord and your Savior, you have a sure and everlasting hope. And if you're here this evening, but you're not sure, you're not sure about this, may you consider Jesus. May you consider the one who has the perfect life. May you consider the one who went through this gruesome death. May you consider the way that he has conquered And do you know what stands behind all of that? What is at the heart of that but his love for you? It is his love. His love for you as he has offered for you not a thing, not a great act, but he's offering you himself. And with that, hope. A true and a sure hope. Because there's no sure hope for you on this earth. You can continue searching for it. You can go all your days, all around the world searching for it, and you will not find it. Until you look in the scriptures. So why won't you cease and stop this searching, this wandering, and come to him? Let us pray. Father God, may we indeed not forget about Mount Mount Golgotha. May we not practically live each day of our life not reflecting on the true depth and strength of your love. Lord, may, may indeed that love be the very thing that propels us onward, that changes the way we live our lives, changes the way we think about things, changes the way we speak about things. And Lord, in the times when we find ourselves in the valley, in the valley of shadow of death, may we just look up. May we look to Jesus, the one who has conquered, the one who is seated next to you. And may that be the thing that gives us the strength to press on.
that thing being your love. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.